Hello and welcome to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. On this episode, we're talking China, and more specifically, its leader, President Xi Jinping. China experts Steve Tsang and Olivia Chung are here to discuss their new book, The Political Thought of Xi Jinping, which explores the motives behind the messaging of one of the world's most powerful figures. Our host for the discussion is Katie Stallard. Katie is senior editor for China and Global Affairs at The New Statesman. She's also the author of Dancing on Bones, History and Power in China, Russia and North Korea. Let's join Katie now with more. I'm delighted to introduce our guests today, Steve Sang and Olivia Chung. Steve Sang is director of the China Institute at SOAS University of London. He's also a fellow at the Academy of Social Sciences and an emeritus fellow at St. Anthony's College, Oxford. Olivia Chung is a research fellow at the China Institute at SOAS and the co-author with Steve of their new book, The Political Thought of Xi Jinping. Welcome to you both. So I think anyone who has had even passing contact with Chinese officialdom in recent years will have come across references to Xi Jinping thought, or to give it its full and very catchy name, Xi Jinping thought on socialism with Chinese characteristics for a new era. But I think very few of us have a real sense of what that actually means in practice and how it maps on to Chinese domestic politics and foreign policy. So Steve, I wonder if we could start with a brief overview. What exactly is Xi Jinping thought and how should we think about its significance? Is this a new ideology, a political framework, more of a work in progress, what would you say? Well, Xi Jinping thought is something which Xi Jinping would like it to be treated effectively as the new state ideology of China and of the Communist Party. Um, in a sort of very strict academic sense, it probably does not meet the definition of, a, of an ideology. And as something which is meant to be the latest, most contemporary rendition of Marxism-Leninism in China, it is also remarkably not strong in the socialist contents of it. But it does outline a very clear vision of what Xi Jinping wants China to be. And this is something which he called the China dream of national rejuvenation something that has to be achieved by 2049 or 2050 at the latest. It also outlines the methods that Xi Jinping thinks China should follow in order to reach this goal of the China dream of national rejuvenation. Olivia, let me bring you in. I mean, how would you sum up the main argument of your book in terms of why this matters and what that vision that Steve was outlining there looks like in practice. So I think like Xi Jinping thought is something we have to take very seriously if we want to know China's direction of travel in the foreseeable future, because Xi Jinping has established himself as the strongman of China. He has no successor in sight and he has no, um, effectively no term limit. So this means that what he says, um, would have a very powerful effect on directing China's policy directions. So this would be a, a quite compelling reason for taking it seriously. Now, as to a summary of what Xi Jinping thought is about, I think um, in the book, we um, boil it down to two things. The first thing is really to create a sense of oneness, um, one party, one China, one leader, one ideology, 
one people. So the idea that there has to be homogeneity across the spectrum throughout China, united on the basis of Xi Jinping's political thinking. So this addresses a mainly um, domestic China, what happens inside China, although Xi Jinping also uses his thoughts or put it forward as a guide to um, Chinese people all over the world or ethnic Chinese, so as to say. So the oneness, the sense of oneness applies to them as well. The second dimension of Xi Jinping thought, which is more of an external dimension, is to make China strong and respected on the world stage. And this completes um, his goal of the China dream of national rejuvenation. And this means that the people of China should be able to um, stand tall when they travel abroad and feel proud of their country. And China would win the admiration of respect throughout by countries throughout the world. Steve, how is this different from what, what came before Xi Jinping thought? The way how we put it in the book, to use the language of the digital era, is that the political system, the hardware of China, has not changed from, it, from when it was founded by Mao Zedong in 1949 as the People's Republic of China. Now, what has changed is the way how the country is being governed, led, and driven. And under Mao Zedong, it effectively was operating under operating system version 1. And this was changed to operation system 2.0, when Deng Xiaoping became the leader of China and started the reform and opening up of China in December 1978, effectively until Xi Jinping took over in 2012, when operating system 3.0 was put in place. Now, the huge difference between operating systems 2.0 and 3.0 is that 3.0 goes back to its Leninist roots of the Communist Party. And the Leninist Party is all about control. The state under the leadership of the party and the party under the leadership of its core, who is Xi Jinping, will devise the vision, come up with the method, and provide the organization and the guardians to drive the country and its people in a unified direction of travel. It's very different from the operating system 2.0 when Deng Xiaoping was effectively saying that it's all right to have some elements of experimentation and we will allow for more scope for views to be articulated confidentially within the party circle. So collective leadership was effectively put in place. And now it is one strong man at the top of the party, which rise at the top of the country and the people driving it. So it's a very substantial change. And in this change, some of the elements of operating system 0. Uh, the first version, uh, 1.0, from the Mao Zedong era was being reinstated because they were being seen as useful, something that under operating system 2.0, people were very edgy about because people were concerned about a restoration of the Maoist era of chaos and sufferings. Olivia, what are some of those elements of operating 
system 1.0, one, 1 as, as, as Steve puts it, what are some of the elements of Maoist thinking that we're seeing come back with Xi Jinping thought? Right. So I think I would take this not only as Mao, Mao's own thinking, but thinking that dominated the Mao era at a time when, you know, Mao was um, in power. So several of them are really, you know, um, dominant in Xi Jinping's political thinking. Um, the first one is really the idea of Leninism that Steve already has alluded to previously. So in Mao era, uh, Mao's right-hand man, effectively the second highest leader of China, was a man by the name of Liu Xiaoqi. And he is somebody who really subscribed to Lenin's way of like running the Chinese Communist Party. And that means an emphasis on um, investing in the party as an organizational structure that can penetrate society and which has strong leadership and strong esteem from outside the party. So from the government organs, from private companies, from universities, from social groups, and so on. So Xi Jinping really buys this idea. And what he is doing is to revigorate the party, the Chinese Communist Party, as a Leninist instrument of control and of power. And this means, um, in simple terms, to show up vertical um, hierarchy, um, leading up to Xi Jinping himself as the core leader, to increase ideological indoctrination so as to unite thinking of the whole party and the whole country based on a standard Xi Jinping has established. And a Leninist party is also about um, discipline. So Xi Jinping cares um, massively about um, political loyalty, which he defines as the greatest political discipline. So party members are instructed to show loyalty to Xi Jinping. And this is to be done by faithfully putting Xi Jinping's policies into practice, whether or not those policies may cut into your self-interest or whether or not you agree with them personally. Those are um, irrelevant. So um, discipline, um, loyalty, ideological indoctrination and hierarchy um, is really what make up Leninism. And Xi Jinping um, goes quite to some length in putting it into implementation. Now, he also subscribed to uh, Mao's idea of the mass line. And it means that the party needs to maintain a very close relationship with um, citizens and um, grassroots community and basically any entities outside the party from the bottom level, the party need to embrace them very closely. So this is something quite significant because it shows that we cannot just think of the Chinese Communist Party as any standard authoritarian regime, which we might have an impression of being very controlling, imposing. So in many ways, the Chinese Communist Party has those attributes, but at the same time, they are being moderated through the mass line, which means the party take into account public opinion and try to convince the people that the party is delivering what they want. So we see that under Xi Jinping in the form of a very um, ambitious anti-pollution campaign, anti-poverty campaign, and also a very ambitious anti-corruption campaign. Now, obviously, you know, cleaner air, um, less poverty, and cleaner government are goals that the Chinese people really desire. And Xi Jinping shows that he would go to lengths to deliver them. So I think these are significant um, in showing that he is serious about putting Mao's mass line into practice by, by showing the people that the party is uniting with them. Steve, is there a tension between this idea of the mass line and being seen to consult and to, to go out and to take the people's views into opinion and the oneness, the homogeneity that you lay out in this book, that there's really one way of, of being Chinese, of being a patriotic citizen. 
Is there a tension between those those two goals here? Well, not in the conceptualization of Mao Zedong that Xi Jinping has adopted. The original Maoist conceptualization of the mass line, which is also called in a different way, which is called from the masses and to the masses. Now, that explains it much better. What the party does is that it goes out to solicit views from the general public on any important subject matter. And then the party de- developed its own policy on that particular policy area, but incorporate enough of the elements from the opinions collected from the general public so that the party's policy, which is what the party wants, not what public opinion says they want, becomes the policy and the party use is most powerful propaganda machinery to go out into the people and tell them this is the new policy and this is where we have taken into account what you have said. So this is your policy. But fundamentally, it is the party's policy making people believe that it is their views that have been taken account into this policy making and make it into something better. And with that very effective propaganda machinery, most people don't even know that they are being uh, led in a direction that they were not originally wanting to go. They thought they had been consulted properly. To take your software analogy, perhaps to and, and maybe beyond its limits, um, Olivia, I know when I when I do a software upgrade, various programs stop working. You have to update lots of elements of, of your computer. Are there tensions here in terms of the implementation of this software 3.0 and then how it's actually working and being applied in practice? I think there are um, numerous tensions. And one fundamental reason is... Um, like what you say, you know, whenever you upgrade a software, there are discrepancies with existing systems. So we are really talking about um, those tensions that Xi Jinping tries to harmonize. And to give one example, um, China is a very diverse country. You have um, extreme, really, socioeconomic diversity. You're very rich and very poor people. And you also have um, significant um, ethnic religious diversity and also um, differences in political views. And one classic example of how those, you know, um, tension really come to the fore um, quite in a quite an extreme manner is um, Xi Jinping's policy towards um, Xinjiang, which no matter um, how you describe that, um, was a very forceful and coercive policy in an attempt to make an ethnic minority group um, much more um, similar to the dominant Han Chinese minority. Now, so this is a significant tension because it almost is showing that the party um, is not on their side. The party is, you know, cracking down on them. The way Xi Jinping harmonizes it, though, is that he put it under what Steve and I called in the book a new de facto social contract, where he offers the people of China, including ethnic minorities who live in China, the promise of a better tomorrow, a better material future, if they agree to be loyal and patriotic Chinese citizens in the way that Xi Jinping understands it to be. So we see the crackdown in Xinjiang um, being um, implemented alongside um, a very um, well-funded 
um, anti-poverty campaign, a lot of that effort was actually focused on Xinjiang, where like a lot of money were transferred to Xinjiang to build big and also to offer employment opportunities to the people, including ethnic minorities there. And also they were systematically um, organized to work in factories um, outside of Xinjiang in the rest of China. So the way Xi Jinping sees it is they are given um, a better material future. They are given vocational training. And some of them even moved into, you know, better, safer um, accommodation. And in return, um, they are asked to put loyalty to the party above, you know, their ethnic or religious um, identity or commitment. So in that sense, oneness and, um, you know, the, the sense of oneness that Xi Jinping wants to forge and in return, you know, like asking for them, accepting more party control and expressing more loyalty to the party, Xi Jinping sees it as all, you know, two sides of the same coin. Steve, you wanted to come in there. Yes, I think what I wanted to add here is that Xi Jinping, was, when he talks about the upgrading of the social contract, he also includes a spiritual, in quotation marks, spiritual elements to it, which is that he is going to make your mainstream Chinese very, very proud citizens of China because China is successful. China commands and requests and requires international recognition. And therefore, you are a citizen of this great country that the rest of the world admires. And it also extended to the ethnic minorities by saying that we are going to upgrade you from just being some kind of minorities who are quaint, special, under, essentially implying underdeveloped and poor and not thinking well, into Chinese citizens who are able to think like a patriotic Chinese is supposed to think. And therefore, you will have a reason to be a proud Chinese now, some Uyghurs and Tibetans and other minorities might have second thoughts about that. But the theory is that Xi Jinping is actually upgrading them. What if people don't want to be upgraded? What if people see that as being made into a, a Han ideal of, of what it means to be Chinese and losing their heritage and their culture and their history? Can it, can it be a social contract if there's no real ability to say no. Well, big uncle Xi will come out and reassure you that you are just being misguided, and particularly by hostile foreign forces who encourage you to think what you really aren't, because they want to keep you down. Uncle Xi is here for you, to support you, to help you change and amend your mistakes and learns to better yourself, and every resources will be put in place to do so. If it means better jobs, we will provide that. If it means better training, we have a lot of facilities to train you, including training your brains to think correctly how to do that. There is no option. There is only one kind of people in China, and that is patriotic Chinese. If you choose not to be a patriotic Chinese, then you are an enemy of the people. And you are well advised not to be so. 
Livia, what does that mean for the the future of ethnic minorities within China? Um, I think like it, we are really looking at a direction of um, um, them being forcefully sinicized, you know, made rendered Chinese or rendered um, Han ethnicity and rendered mainstream. And um, we are talking about um, the greater use of um, regulation to encourage conformity and also um, just really the seamless seamlessness of um, sinicization being integrated into society. So in Xinjiang, for example, there has been um, concerted efforts to build um, boarding schools and their official documents um, readily available online by the time when we were doing research that suggested that the reason to do it is to um, break the influence of a religious atmosphere that you know young um, Uyghurs, young children in Xinjiang would receive in their home. So um, we are seeing more and more control using various means. And I think a lot of it under Xi Jinping is, is moving in the direction of increasing the party's capacity in using technology to um, exercise um, precision control and also like a kind of control that really is about changing um, your thinking, not only about you know regulating what you do or not do in daily life. So we see that in um, the use of you know mobile phone apps that promote you know Xi Jinping speeches that has been um, widely um, propagated throughout society and for people on state payroll, which are you know a lot of people and party employed party members, the use of that is mandatory. And we are also seeing um, everybody in China being reached out by the education system and propaganda um, authorities at large to study and learn Xi Jinping thought. So the wider picture there is there really isn't an option. Um, to to think differently, like the the space to do that has become increasingly narrowed, and if we do see resistance, which there is, it is more of a form of passive resistance than you know actively um, confronting or denouncing um, the kind of political control that is being put on them under Xi Jinping. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. 
Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. Steve, you had something else to add, I think. What I think Xi Jinping would be happy with is for all the ethnic minorities, Uyghurs and Tibetans included, to keep their traditions in terms of their costumes and some of the cultural practices. But they must, first and foremost, become patriotic Chinese first. Then, within that framework, they can keep their cultural, religious, or other characters. Um, If they don't, then they will have to learn to be good patriotic Chinese first. There is no alternative to that pathway. Not if Xi Jinping continues to stay in power. The other key component that you laid out was how this applies to China's place in the world and this sense of a China that is great and strong again. What did you learn from your research on what Xi Jinping thought tells us about how she sees the international order and China's place in it? Now, in terms of the international order, Xi Jinping takes the view, and that is in fact a view that the Communist Party takes for a long time, but Xi Jinping simply pushes to a level that has not ever been pushed quite so hard. It's a view that the liberal international order of the post-Second World War is not in fact the best world order for the majority of people in the world because this is a world order devised and imposed by the victors of the Second World War, effectively the leading Western powers, Western imperialist powers. And what Xi Jinping say should be done is, in quotation marks, the democratization of the international order, that the views of the overwhelming majority of the people of the world, people in the global south, being taken into account properly and fully in the international order. And Xi Jinping also defines China as a member of the global south and will therefore always be a member of the global south, however great China may become. And therefore, China is the, if you like, the natural leader of the global south and will represent the views and the people of the global south in helping the world to change the international order into one that will look after the interests of the global south. So effectively, it is a more increasing influence in the international organizations and then changing them in such a way that the international order effectively will change from the existing one into one that would be, if not Sinocentric, then at least would be fantastically China-friendly. And that's why Xi Jinping puts so much emphasis on Chinese foreign policy in working with the global south, cultivating their support, whether we're talking about the Bell and Road Initiative or the three global shot initiative that Xi Jinping talks about, the global 
Development Initiative, the Global Security Initiative, or the Global Civilization Initiative. What land Xi Jinping is shaping is a common destiny for the humankind under the leadership of a, what he would call, magnificent and benevolent and wonderful China. Under the leadership of the Communist Party and Xi Jinping, of course. Of course. Um, Olivia, we see a lot of debate about whether we should think about China in terms of the international order that, that Steve lays out there as a reformist or a revisionist power, whether China sees itself rising within a, a modified version of the existing order or whether it wants to fundamentally remake that order. Where did you come down on that in this book? What Xi Jinping wants to do is really to take existing elements in the order that is useful for China to make it work for China even better. And for those elements that he find problematic to um, replace them with elements that would be more pro-China. So things that he really have a problem with um, would be, you know, a promotion of human rights as um, in a liberal notion of that, you know, political and civil rights as understood in liberal in a liberal democratic context, or the idea that China's um, state-owned econ- um, state-owned enterprises and state-led economy is, you know, anti-competition and is not in the spirit of free market, and that need to go. He has a problem with that, and. I think fundamentally what he is really getting at is that um, China, despite um, the lack of um, liberal democratic features in its political system, is a genuinely you know, successful and good political system, and it should be recognized as such. So he pushes very hard the idea that um, all political regimes are of equal value. And by that, what he is really trying to do is to push back on criticisms towards um, authoritarianism, especially towards um, China's own political system. He sees that as a fundamental um, threat that the liberal international order poses to him and his political regime. So a lot of what he does is really to push back liberalism. Steve, you, you write in the book about the importance of the Tianxia paradigm or the all under heaven approach. Can you explain what is meant by that and what it's sort of contemporary incarnation under under Xi would look like? The Tensha conceptualization is, if you like, a recreation of history. So it is not actually good history, but it is the recreation of history. Bearing in mind that um, a year after Xi Jinping became leader in China, he released a document now popularly called document number nine, in which he introduced a concept called historical nihilism, which means that there is now only one version of history, the Xi Jinping version of history, no other version of history is being allowed in China. So in this reconstruction of history, there was a time when China was the most powerful, advanced, developed, civilized, rich, and magnanimous power in the world in a way comparable to the at the height of the Roman Empire, except that the Chinese one was better, more uh, civilized and kinder. And because it was so superior, others would like to learn from China, some even 
copied the Chinese model. But that magnificent China does not seek to impose an export of the Chinese model. It just provides the lessons for everybody to learn as they please and freely make that wisdom and concepts available. Now, the recreation of the Tensha paradigm effectively will mean a new world order in which China will play such a role, a kind of Pax Syndica or Chinese peace. It will be Chinese peace because if all the other nations all has the wisdom to voluntarily choose to admire, respect, defer to China, then why would China ever need to use force against any other country? And the world will therefore be a peaceful one and a better one, benefiting from the wisdom of Xi Jinping. Olivia, what does that mean for China's relations with other major powers in in this concept? I mean, particularly I'm thinking about the relationship and and the rivalry with the US. How does that fit into this idea of a, a Pax Sinica? Xi Jinping put forward the notion of a new type of great power relations to define how China and the US should interact with each other. So what he is really getting at is the United States need to respect China's um, core interests as defined by the Chinese Communist Party. And that include, you know, um, Taiwan or China, how China treats um, its human rights um, dissidents. And also at the most basic level, the US need to respect the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party. So Xi Jinping set these as a political baseline for a normal, healthy interaction of China-US relation. And if the US cannot do that, his approach is that the United States need to learn, need to be taught that this is the correct way to treat China. So I think what we are getting at is there is this tension um, as a result of his ideas lying behind China-US relationship that um, would not go away, even if we see, you know, um, some um, warming up of ties or temporary, you know, suspension of um, rivalry on the surface or, you know, increasing economic relations and so on. But fundamentally, um, Xi Jinping really needs the United States to respect China in the way he understands it to be. And this would really mean showing a lot more respect to China's political system Um, China's territorial claims um, than the United States finds comfortable to do so. Steve, what does this mean for Taiwan? Where does Taiwan fit into Xi's vision of of national rejuvenation and and the China dream that you set out? Well, Taiwan is integral to Xi Jinping's China dream of national rejuvenation. And since the dream will have to be fulfilled by 2049 or 2050 at the latest, by that point, Taiwan will have to be part of China. And of course, Xi Jinping's patterns will be that people in Taiwan, including its government, will have the wisdom to know that it is in their best interest to be part of China, and therefore they voluntarily choose to do so, in which case all will be hunky-dory. Again, if they were unwise enough not to do so, they will have to be educated, taught a lesson, 
and China will do whatever it takes to make sure that this very important goal, beneficial not only to China, but to the whole world, will have to be achieved. And any other country, meaning of course the United States first and foremost, feeling that it it can interfere, will have to be stopped or likewise taught a lesson. Is there a sense that she is boxing himself and China in here by making this so core to she thought and this new ideology? Is he removing the possibility for for any sort of compromise? I mean, that you set a timeline there of 2049-50, which seems a long time away, but is really only what it, one more generation from now. Well, it is indeed not that far off. In a sense, Xi Jinping is boxing himself in, but we also need to bear in mind the history of the Chinese Communist Party is a history when history itself can be completely rewritten. Truth can be totally reshaped. Uh, historically, and before 1949, the Communist Party of China was the strongest public advocate for an independent Taiwan. Now, that part of the history has been completely wiped, and people have since been taught that Taiwan is a sacred territory of China from time immemorial and must be taken back into the fold of China. So if Xi Jinping really wants to change that, and with that kind of control over the uh, propaganda machinery and the narrative and history, he can do that over a period of time. Now, the reason why I believe that he won't do that is not so much because of this narrative of the what the Chinese government would call the One China Principle. It is the genuine geostrategic importance of Taiwan to China. Taiwan is right in the middle of what the Chinese maritime strategy call the first island chain. If China cannot secure the first island chain, which goes basically from the southern tip of Japan down into the South China Sea, into the Southeast Asian island countries, then China cannot totally defend and secure the eastern seaboard of China, which is the most heavily developed, industrialized part of China. And China also cannot project power from the first island chain into the second island chain, which would divide the Pacific Ocean into two, with the western part under Chinese and the eastern part under American influence or control. And of course, the very reality that Taiwan exists in, as an independent political entity outside of China is because of American protection of Taiwan's security. So if China takes Taiwan one way or the other, it means either the Americans cannot interfere or the Americans are deterred from interfering or the American intervention was sufficiently defeated that the Americans will have to give up. In any of those scenarios, it will have completely established 
Chinese dominance in the Indo-Pacific region. Your major Indo-Pacific players, love from Japan to Korea, all the way down Southeast Asia, will all have to do their deals with China or go nuclear. And of course, when we see a change of that magnitude, even NATO will have to start thinking about whether they can count on American security guarantee any longer. Because the American security guarantee in the Indo-Pacific simply would have collapsed by that point. And the international order in effect would have been changed. I want to try and squeeze in a couple of final questions here. Um, so, Olivia, let me ask you this, which might seem kind of intuitive, given that we're talking about Xi Jinping thought here. But is it fair to say that she is not, in fact, the sole author of this? I mean, who are the, the key figures that we should know about who are contributing, who are, who are shaping this ideology? So I think we can think of Xi Jinping thought as um, a collective product that Xi Jinping ultimately um, has control and endorsed those ideas. At a very basic level, Xi Jinping simply doesn't have the time or, um, or, the, or the ability even to write that many speeches. So a lot are written for him, most of them, but like by you know actually saying those speeches and letting his name be put to them, um, he is showing that he embraces you know, those ideas. And we also see, you know, um, consistency in Xi Jinping's thinking over time. I think this is a really good time to talk about Xi Jinping thought because um, the man came to power first in 2012. So it has been a substantial period of time. And he started articulating his ideas since then. And we see, you know, basically a same body of ideas that get developed and strengthened over time. So there is remarkable consistency in what he says. So that would show, you know, a sense of ownership. But like who, who are responsible besides Xi, Jing, Xi Jinping himself? So there are propaganda officials and a key person um, is a man by the name of Wang Huning, who was previously um, a political scientist at a top Chinese university. And he was recruited by Xi Jinping to help, you know, formulate Xi Jinping thought, you know, essentially the main ideas um, that go into it. But Xi Jinping thought itself as a construct, you know, draws from Maoism. We talked about, you know, the Mars line. We talk about Leninism being an idea that really thrived during the Mao era under Mao's right-hand man, Liu Xiaoqi. And there are also elements of ancient Chinese thinking, um, both Confucianism and legalism, that are reflected in Xi Jinping's political ideas. So the construct of Tianxia, or All Under Heaven, is a Confucian ideal on how interstate relations in ancient Asia um, should be run. You have a benevolent and powerful emperor who can maintain peace throughout you know, the region because they respect China. So that the sense that Chinese supre supremacy is based on you know, Chinese soft power in today's language is a very Confucian construct. And there is also legalism. The idea that you know strict rules are necessary to instruct correct behavior, and under Xi Jinping, we see uh, um, really a lot of laws and regulations have been passed inside the party towards society, and they are very strict and they come with harsh penalties. And those rules and laws, especially those pertaining to um, national security, 
the core of which being the CCP, Chinese Communist Party's own security. Those laws are being enforced um, very harshly. And it's not only targeting you know, a minority of dissidents, but it has wide implication towards the whole society, towards businesses in general. Steve, let me give you the final word here. What does this tell us about how she sees his place in China's future and, and how long he might seek to remain in power? Well, in the conceptualization of Xi Jinping thought, we will have to see concentric circles. The world is, if you like, the most outer concentric circle. China is the next one. Within China, you have the Communist Party. Within the Communist Party, you have the Party Central. Within your Party Central, you have the core of the Communist Party. That is Xi Jinping. They are all one set of concentric circles. So what is being seen as the best thing for the world and for China is in fact is in fact what is best for the core of the Communist Party and therefore everything else. Now that being the case, it is not possible for the core to be dispensable. And that is why it is so important that the rules for the top leader in China to have a termination date of office cannot be accepted. Xi Jinping did not abolish term limits for all top level officials in the Communist Party. He only did it for the core leader himself because he, the core leader, is different. He is special. He is no longer like under operating system 2.0, first among equals in the party central's most important leadership core, which is the Politburo Standing Committee of seven or nine leaders. He is the leader. The other members of the Politburo Standing Committee now have to write annual reports to him and be answerable to him. That is what he conceives it to be. Of course, whether he will ever achieve what he sets out in Xi Jinping thought is a different matter. And I would say that he himself is perhaps his own worst enemy. Steve Sang and Olivia Chung, thank you for joining us and for such a fascinating conversation. And my thanks too to Intelligence Squared. The book again is The Political Thought of Xi Jinping, to be published by Oxford University Press. I'm Katie Stallard, and you've been listening to Intelligence Squared. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. If you want to keep up with everything going on at Intelligence Squared, sign up to the newsletter. Head over to intelligencesquared.com to get the heads up on all our live events coming up. And members can also peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds. That's all over at intelligencesquared.com. 